Hi, everyone, and welcome to Invested. I'm Danielle Town, and I'm so excited to tell you that my dad and I summarized everything I've been learning on the podcast and in my investing practice from him, from Warren Buffett, and from Charlie Munger, and I turned it into a memoir of one year of my life from knowing nothing about investing to starting this podcast and eventually, now, investing on my own. The book is called Invested, How Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger Taught Me to Master My Mind, My Emotions, and My Money with a Little Help from My Dad. There's no other investing book like this one, and you'll hear about it on this episode. It has the rule number one principles of investing in it, of course, and it goes deeper than my dad's other books into very clear methods of how to support your values with your money how to read financial statements and do financial equations, which you guys know have been so difficult for me, and how to know if you're making a huge mistake when you choose a company. We deal with the fear, you guys. And it also gets pretty personal into our relationship because as you know from listening to us on the podcast, money and family relationships are so intertwined. So the book is out for pre-order now. It comes out March 27th, and it turns out that pre-orders of books are extremely important. We've never had ads on our podcast, so we do ask you, if you listen to our podcast and you like what we're doing here, please reserve your book now. I know you're thinking you'll just buy it when it comes out, and we totally appreciate that. But this is how important pre-orders are to us. We're going to be announcing a fabulous bunch of free gifts for everyone who reserves their book now which frankly, the free gifts have a dollar value of far more than the book itself. And it will be really easy to turn in your receipt. You'll just email it to us when we announce the gift package. So you can buy it now on Amazon, on Barnes and Noble, or from your local bookstore. And you guys know we love to support independent bookstores. They will all pre-order it for you. So thank you so much for being part of this practice, everyone. And please, if you like what we do here on the podcast, pre-order Invested Now. It's the perfect complement to the podcast itself. Thanks, everybody. Hi, everybody. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. We're here for the Invested Podcast, where we are learning all the things you're supposed to do, four of them, actually, (laughs) to be a great investor. (laughs) All four. Let's just... them off and go home. Directly from Charlie Munger uh, via Warren Buffett, Ben Graham. Um, These are just four simple things that we're learning and we're just learning them deeply, I think is how we could say it. That they do do tend to expand. We're practicing them is what we're doing. That's what we're doing. We're practicing them. So let's hear the four things. I love that you're adopting my practice perspective. I think the practice perspective is my whole new way of teaching this. (laughs) Really thrilled with the idea that it's a practice. Um, But tell us the four things that you must do. The four things, Mm -hmm. which shape our new book dad invested i hope everyone will go and pre-order are from charlie munger they're from an interview that he did uh for the bbc in i think 2012 and he just laid them out in about a minute boom 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 four principles of investing first one is be capable of understanding the company which means know that this is a company that with some research you can understand it The next one is the company has to have an intrinsic and durable competitive advantage. 
Um, so that's number two. The wait, wait, what is it again? Intrinsible. The intrinsible competitive advantage. Okay. Uh, number three is management. We would like them to have integrity and be intelligent, but Charlie does not say that they have to be, which I find curious, but it's because you always say the company has to be able to basically go on its own, even if it has a terrible manager. Yeah, that's why it's, it's you know, it still has the railroad tracks, even if they didn't run the trains very properly, they still have the railroad tracks. Like it's just so strong that stupid humans can't screw it up too much. Yep, you go find somebody good to run it. And then the fourth one is a price that makes sense, which of course in true Charlie fashion, he doesn't elaborate on and is torturous to me, but. But we've I've narrowed it down in the book quite a lot, I've I spent, think. I've spent so much time, you guys, basically yelling at my dad, poor dad, <laughs> on the phone. Thank goodness for phone lines that go from Switzerland to Atlanta, because basically we just yelled at each other a lot until <laughs> I got the answers I wanted and it made sense to me. Uh, and, you know, like financial people just don't think the way I do. That's all I can figure out. And I think that actually Charlie and Warren were sitting in Solomon Brothers' office years ago when uh, they were basically having to hold the, the hands of an entire investment bank so that the federal government wouldn't shut them down and, and damage mm. Buffett's investment. That's right. Um, they went into Solomon Brothers, didn't they? I forgot all about that. I mean, the, I wasn't. Yeah, really after one of their that. traders started manipulating the T-bill the market. So they went in there and watched how these guys functioned, which is how Wall Street does it. And Charlie once said that it's like you really can't believe that grown men would continue to use formulas which have been that are obviously not true. And Charlie said, and over time, they had come to know that they weren't true. But he, hmm. they're just so good at the math. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. It's true. Stop it. So you have you have these guys who are just I mean they really what what I think Charlie could have said is that they just don't have the the other there's no new paradigm. If if the old paradigm doesn't work, the earth is actually not flat and you don't have a new paradigm, then you just stay with the old one even if you know it's not true. And that's yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? Go to nothingness? No, you can't. You have to have something. You gotta stay. Yeah, Particularly if I you're an it. expert on Wall Street, you have to provide the people Particularly with knowledge. Particularly if the something has been working for a very long time. Well, working in a in the sense that you get paid one hundred billion dollars a year. Yeah, that's that exactly works pretty right. damn good. That, that'll work for one year, and one year all you need. That's all you need, baby. And uh, you know, if the ships don't fall out, it's like Buffett said it. Ships will sail around the earth, but the flat earth society persists. <laughs> so those are the those are the four things we have. It's that do you understand this thing? Do you know that it has a moat? Um, do you trust the management team? And is is it available at a really fair price, a really good price? And we further understand that the the world that are the number of companies that you or I could understand at that level of comfort are relatively a small number. They're not 11,000 companies right. or 60,000 companies. 
that first one, the meaning of the company, being able to understand it is a real gatekeeper. No, it yeah. knocks out 98% of companies for me. Yeah. And it knocks it out for me too. And for everybody too, it, it's, it knocks them out for two reasons. First, there are the companies that we, that are understandable, but it's just too hard for me. Right. I mean, Warren Buffett might get it, but it's too hard for me. Or Jeff Bezos might get it, but it's too hard for Warren. Right. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. there are those kind of companies. And then there are companies which simply cannot, by their by the nature of what they do, they cannot be understood long term. There's no way to know. It's virtually impossible to know what many companies will be doing in 10 years. You just there's just no way. So all of those kinds of things, we push those away. And all of a sudden, this very complex world with thousands and thousands of companies and thousands of levels of complexity, suddenly we've narrowed it down. As, as Warren once said to a Washington, D.C. audience, we narrow it down to chewing gum, not oh, yeah? computers, not <laughs> computers. So where Bill Gates is very comfortable with computer companies, Warren is like, hey, I want something that doesn't change much, um, like chewing gum. And I can understand chewing gum. And then it simply becomes a matter of patience. I say simply, it's the hardest thing in the world, to be patient and wait for that chewing gum company to go on sale. Because it's gonna take something major to put it on sale because everybody knows it's simple to understand. Everybody can predict the future. All the Wall Street guys, all are smarter than we are. They're all predicting the future, very, very lovely, very comfortable, and they bid the price way up, and it's never on sale until there's a major event. Yeah. And this is the magic of this type of investing, is that Ben Graham said 85 years ago, those major events come along regularly. Market fluctuations, meaning that there's a recession that comes along in the, in the economic system of every capitalist economic system, recessions come along as a matter of clockwork, every five to 10 years, bam, everything goes on sale. Yeah, and at those times, there's a lot of fear and uncertainty around the market. So we, by following this particular kind of investing strategy, by definition, have to be extremely grounded and firm in our convictions and confident in the choices that we've made. And the difficulty in getting to that place is that uncertainty creates fear. Right. So if we are going to get to this place where everyone else's uncertainty is creating all this fear in the market, will, will there be a financial freeze? Will the economy ever recover? Those questions are being driven by uncertainty on, on the short-term markets. What's going on in the short-term market? There's some crisis, there's a war, there's an economic meltdown. So this uncertainty starts to spill over and we all start to feel this nervousness and fear. So how do we get rid of uncertainty? And Charlie said that the, the, the way you have to do it is you have to invert the argument for why this is such a great company. You invert it, you turn it on its head and then you understand that side of it even better than the people who believe this is a terrible idea to invest in. Totally, which I think is such a beautiful idea because so much of the investing practice that you taught me initially for months and months was 
positive. It was like finding a great company, finding a wonderful company, falling in love with it, really working out the numbers. Okay. Like everything's adding up to green light, green light, green light, green light. And that feels really good. And then you said, now you have to switch it all up and you have to basically cross-examine your own argument and switch it all around, kill your babies in a way, and find a reason that this company that I've spent so much time now researching is actually a terrible buy and I should never want anything to do with it, which is so emotionally difficult. Yes. But it's also it's also a great practice. I just I just find it, I know it sounds weird, but I just find it to be a really beautiful part of the practice. Um, kind of taking your own emotions, which have been going towards supporting this company for so long, and then saying like, okay, I'm going to sort of notice those and put those to the side, and I'm going to take out my intellectual side again and flip it on its head. Would, would this be a terrible analogy to say that, and I don't know if anybody ever actually does this in the real world, to say that you're looking to marry somebody and you really know their faults well enough that no one could ever come to you and go, oh, did you know this about them? And, and you would have already known that. <laughs> You'd already know. They would come in and say, did you know this about... And you go, yeah, yeah, I got that. That's I'm marrying them in spite of that. It doesn't I understand what the limits of that are. So in a company, you think that's a dumb analogy? I don't think it's that dumb. No, I think I think you know it's a little weird, but it's it's kind of it's kind of similar. I would say. I mean, it is. It's like you. The goal here is to eventually get very serious with that company, and the process to go through is to find the warts, find the stuff that's hidden underneath the rock that nobody wants you to know about and decide if that's something that maybe even adds to the company or you can deal with, but you've got to know about it going in. Yes. Now that said, like we're not perfect, right? And we're not geniuses and there will probably be still some things that we don't find, but just to have enough of an understanding to be confident about the major things. And by the way, one of the <clears throat> one of the major things that you all out there who are listening to this podcast can change in the way the world works um, with CEOs of major companies or CEOs of public companies is that we can demand as owners of the business that they tell us the warts of the company. They're very, very good at hiding the the company issues from their own owners. And yeah, there's something fundamentally wrong with that ethic that they think that that's okay. That somehow the people who have invested their hard earned money and own this business, who have bought ownership of the business, somehow don't deserve to know the truth about the business. Somehow that that is okay to hide that information from from those owners. And I'll, I'll tell you, you see them doing it. You see these letters coming out three, four years in a row from the chairman of the board and the CEO about how wonderful everybody is and how great the company is and how great the mission is. And not a word in there about any of the problems that they're having, right? Not a peep. And yet, the and so the owners don't have the information necessary to determine the value of that business at any given point in time. And because of that, 
you end up with people buying in and paying far too much for the business or selling it when it's actually worth far more than they think it is. So absolutely. I, and I think sense? one of the huge one of the huge calls that we make in our book, Invested, is to choose companies with management that refuses to do that. Yes, they can try to hide things. We all know that. Let's put our money with people who on purpose lay out the negative stuff for us and let us decide if their company is still worth investing in. Those are the people who I feel are going to be worthy custodians of my money and are going to be doing good things with it in the world. And that's, I mean, we can all, if we all did this, we run 85% of the money in the market. We could change the market because a company that we take our money out of, 85% of the money in the market would go away quite quickly. And all of a sudden the CEO would get fired quite quickly and things would change. Yes. And to do that requires that we insist. And so we can insist in two ways. We write a letter to the board of directors the board of directors of every public company is chosen by the shareholders theoretically. And the way this no, all works, that you is guys, literally true. Yeah, it's literally that they choose them. But since we don't have any other choices than to vote or not vote for that group of people, most boards are elected by default, and most boards, the 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 group of people who are put up for election, are very cleverly put up for election, well, they're put up for election by the CEO, principally. That, that's the main person who's choosing who's running for the board, number Yeah, one. that does happen often. It's this weird little, like, uh, refractive circle amongst themselves. Yeah, and it's deviously, um, it's, it's, I wouldn't say deviously, it is, it encourages bad behavior. When yeah, you I mean, it's not, it's not automatically a negative thing. No. Let's be aware of the situation here. It happens in all sorts of companies in a, in a very good way where there's a really good team and they want to stay together. Yep. But it can also happen in negative ways, of course. Now, also, board members are chosen in one of two ways. There's, well, actually, there's a couple, three or four different ways people are choosing board members. Um, one of the most devious ways to do it is to, is to stagger the board elections. And this way, it's very difficult for anybody to get control of the board that the CEO doesn't want to control the board because what they'll do is they'll have, let's say they have five board members, they'll have a new board member elected each year. Yeah, let me explain what staggered board elections are. It, what, there are two ways you can do it. You can either elect the whole board all at once for a certain term, like let's say two to three years, Let's say it's three years. So every three years, the entire board would conceivably be replaced. Whereas if it's staggered elections, it would be one seat is up or maybe two seats are up each year for election. And, you know, there's good reasons for that as well, which is continuity of people on the board, the company not having some massive changeover every three years. I think there are very good reasons that companies choose to have staggered elections. Again, well, I think that there they, are other situations in which it can be a negative thing. Well, I think if you realize that, that I mean, imagine that the company is owned by one person and it's public. I mean, this doesn't happen, but let's just say that we imagine that. And the boards are not staggered. The board is reelected every for a three-year term. 
And so the owner decides who the board members are they want to have running. Then they vote for them and they elect them all for three years. And at the end of three years, the owner is going to have the opportunity to completely eliminate any board members that they don't like, right? Because every uh -huh. three years, that entire board is up for re-election and the owner has the votes to change the board. So the only reason that there wouldn't be continuity of the board is if the owner simply can't stand the board that's there. Otherwise, if continuity is important, they will continue to have enough board members that they have that continuity. So I think that that's a, that's a red herring. I don't think that that's a real problem, um, continuity. I think they use that as an excuse to stagger the board. And once they've got the board staggered, ha, 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 we now control the board forever because any major shareholder revolt against that board is going to take years and years to fully unfold to elect a board that is finally going to throw the CEO out on his butt. So, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is staggered boards are there to protect the CEO. They're not there to protect continuity, I don't think. I don't know about that. I'm trying to think of, so like a, a board obviously doesn't have to stay with a company. They could also decide to leave at the end of their term, which would also mean that the board could just up and disappear and that continuity in the company would be gone. Yeah, but the board members could leave any time. I mean, a board member can resign. There's not, they don't have a gun pointed yeah. at their head. Sure, you know. but they try not to. But I'm just thinking, for example, at Chicago Bridge and Iron, you got Philip Ashman, who's running the company, acquires Shaw Industries, the worst acquisition probably in the history of purchases. Shaw gets into terrible trouble building a nuclear power plant, and ultimately, Bridge, Chicago Bridge and Iron loses almost all the billions of dollars that it's spent on Shaw. Has, I mean, just has to write it all off as a, as a loss of, of value of the company. And... And the CEO continues to stay in place in spite of this horrible decision. Uh, and then there were other decisions after that that were equally questionable. And the board doesn't move and the board doesn't act. And you as a shareholder can't get rid of the board. And nothing happens until like years later when finally Asherman decides to retire. So there's so- but Do you understand that if the board were not staggered and if it happened to be at a time when the entire board was up for re-election, that whole board could have been gotten rid of yes. right away. Yes, That's the point. There are beneficial situations. Well, what's the benefit of that? I want them to go. You all deserve to go, you bunch That's what of I just pansies. said. That's what I just said oh, okay. in a board that's not staggered. Right. Whereas because they were staggered, they were actually protected. Right. Right. From my wrath as a shareholder. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, think this is how deep this goes. Warren Buffett owns a huge chunk of Coca-Cola, like, I don't know, maybe 10% of the company, and does not have a board seat himself because he doesn't want one, but his son is on the Coca-Cola board. Now, Warren had been complaining for years, justifiably, that CEOs are paying themselves a king's ransom of money and they don't really deserve it. And they're paid it and given bonuses no matter what they do. 
I mean, they just make a bonus, right? It's like somehow they get a bonus. All right. Yeah. So now the CEO of Coca-Cola is up for a bonus. And the shareholders are raising holy hell because the company has been going nowhere under this person. It's yeah. the share the stock has been stagnant, just sitting there for years and years and years. And so everybody's thinking, yeah, hey, yeah, okay, here's Buffett's chance to demonstrate the impact of a big shareholder on corporate malfeasance at the get the head level. We're gonna make this happen. And what does Buffett do? Nothing. And what does his son do? Votes for the slate. Yeah, I know. Yeah. You know? And because these guys don't want to rock the boat. I mean, they're in a bigger game. They're playing games with people they know who are very powerful. And even Buffett, I should say especially Buffett. You know, I'm not being critical of him, maybe just a little bit. I understand where he's coming from. He's a world-level player. And and you can see how badly, say, another world-level player like Trump does by just spitting out whatever he thinks about every minute. You really upset people in ways you don't really want to. Buffett doesn't do that. He's a gentleman. He's very careful about what he's doing. I'm sure he's working behind the scenes. But you can see it just from this one example how difficult it is to just make a major change in a major corporation unless you're just absolutely willing to do it, right? And the problem is these big guys are not willing to do it. Whereas if you and I are voting for this company as a group, the 85% ownership of the business could vote individually. We don't have to, you know, to worry about who we're having dinner with next week and what they might say about it. We yeah, just totally. vote these guys out. Yeah, we, just we don't them. care. God. We just want good results. Yeah, we don't know those people. We want results. We want this thing to walk its talk. So I'll, I'll tell you, inverting the, well, first off, taking the power in your hands that you're talking about is huge. If we all did this, you guys, we could change the, the world of, of CEO malfeasance and, and lack of ethics and morals and the way they corrupt the environment, wreck their communities, you know, treat their employees like crap, you know, treat their their suppliers like they're, they've got a gun at their head. We can change all of that just simply by writing a letter or by just simply removing your money from the company. Yeah, I don't know if letters are going to help too much, but I think removing money from the company sends not only a signal, it is literal support for the company disappearing. But, but before you pull the capital or before you actually invest in the money in the in the company, I would say <laughs> if 85% of the shareholders were writing letters saying, you know, you bums, they would be terrified. I mean, those are thousands and thousands of letters and they would be so confused and so thrown off their their balance because they don't know how powerful these people are. They don't know which one is which. But you're talking about people who are shareholders of the company. Shareholders of the company. And I'm talking about as somebody coming in as a potential investor looking around for what to invest in, keeping money out of those companies. Yeah, yeah, Although, good point. Good the point. thing is people do like through our 401ks, through various investing options that we have through our offices sometimes where we are invested in these huge funds that are invested in those companies that you're yep. talking about. So yep. in that way, often we're shareholders without intending to be, which is also extremely irritating. It is, isn't it? A fact. If yeah. you own a 401k, you probably own 
a piece of the S&P 500, which means you own a pro rata share of 500 companies. Pretty much all the companies we're talking about that do this kind of stuff are members of that S&P 500. They're big companies run by big, powerful people. And you are an owner. And you have every right to write letters to these companies and say, what are you doing? You don't represent my morals. You don't represent me. Stop doing it or I'm going to pull my money out of your company. That's true. So what I wanted to do today, Dad, was get to talk to about expensive errors, which is like this fantastic list of stuff that stupid things that smart investors have done that we've put in our book because I think it's so awesome. But then we got all all excited about changing the entire world, which is so important and I love it so much. So can we talk <laughs> next yes. time? Next time. We have an incredible interview with uh, Dawa Chart. Ah, I'm going to trip over his name. Dawa Tarchin Phillips, who is a former Buddhist monk turned consultant to companies and business expert. So he has that combo in his life and he goes into companies and he changes the way they do their business. He changes their structures so that they're more mindful, more aware of what's happening. And he has incredible results because of that. And it's so similar to what we've been talking about on our podcast for you know, two years and, and to what we write about in our book that we just had a great time talking to him. So that will be up next week. And I, I want you guys to, uh, to listen to this guy. If you've ever heard of a book called Siddhartha, written by Herman Hesse, which was a very popular book uh, back in the in the late 60s and early 70s, it's the story of a person who joins a monastery, joins the monks, and learns all the monk tricks of, of living uh, a, a blissful life, and then grows uh, out of that, in a sense, not, not that you'd grow out of it, but determines that his life is better lived in a different direction and goes and becomes a business person. And Dawa Phillips is as close to that sort of novel hero as anybody on the planet. And I am really, really excited for you guys to hear this interview. He's talking about some things about the way Buffett and Munger work, the way we should be thinking about ourselves and our discipline and our practice in a way that I don't think anybody's said before. And I think it's I hugely powerful. He really brought out a certain number of points that we've been circling around for a long time. And yeah. I thought he did it so perfectly. Yep, so it, it's, I'm excited to put that up for you guys next week. And the other thing is one more plug for our book, which is invested. We're so excited about it. Guys, I know I'm pushing the pre-orders a lot. There's a reason for that. Pre-orders really matter for books. And I didn't even know that until we wrote this book and I found out how all this book publishing stuff works. It turns out that pre-orders affect how this book shows up when it actually comes out on March 27th. And we would really love for this book to have a big splash on March 27th. And as you know, we don't have podcasts, or sorry, we don't have ads on our podcast. So this is our one ad, please go pre-order our book on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or your independent bookstore. Um, we would just really appreciate it. And here's, here's another place where your vote really matters. If all of you went out and did that, this book would explode to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. So if you go vote for this, you're going to see it on top of the New York Times. And then what that means is 
it will be picked up by all the publicity, the talk shows. You'll see Danielle on talk shows, and this book will really take off and change lives. So if you've loved this podcast and you want to really see this revolution in investing, reach out to the public. Put, make an investment in this book for this, and you guys will go drive this thing to the top of the New York Times. Yeah, I, I, we would just really appreciate it. And you probably will get it early if you pre-order because they tend to send them out a few days early. And if you've got your copy of your book and you come to where Danielle and I are speaking, we will sign your book for you. Oh, and for sure. Thank you for making this happen. So honey, and with that, mm-hmm. we're going to have all sorts of free gifts for people who pre-order, which we're going to let you guys know about really soon. And all you have to do is have your receipt and it doesn't matter when you bought it now or a week ago. It's all fine. You'll, you'll all get all the gifts. As long as you pre-order it. As long as you pre-order it. All right. Once, once it goes past March 27, yes. it's too late. No more gifts for you. No more. But we've got some cool stuff that we'll do with you, Danielle and I. We'll do it with you. We'll get that out uh, and tell you guys what those are for the pre-orders. So go do it for us and let's make this revolution happen. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Go play. See you. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days we don't sell anything and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free so come on over there and take a look at that and by the way as our lawyers want me to say everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or danielle's opinion my opinion's right and is not to be taken as investing advice because i am not your investment advisor nor have i considered your personal situation as your fiduciary so this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.